Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, the movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello again. Hello. Now, if you're going to make a good British crime thriller, you're going to need a few things. You're going to need a bunch of British actors, maybe a Welsh or a Scotsman thrown in for good measure, a delicately interwoven plot, a couple of baddies from the Eastern Bloc, and a sprinkle of slang, and Mark Strong. Just give Mark Strong more work. I I agree with that last one wholeheartedly. (laughs) Mark Strong. Mix all those together in a big bowl of some indie filmmaker sensibilities, garnish the taste with Vinnie Jones, serve with a fresh cuppa, and you've got yourself a genre film. Now, I think we both love a good genre film, but there's a real challenge in innovating in the space versus just painting by the numbers. So why don't we talk about what makes a good genre film? I think it has to be a fresh take on that category. Like the reason the spaghetti Westerns by Sergio Leone are so well, you know, well liked and remembered is because the Western genre, like at that era of Hollywood filmmaking from the thirties to the forties into the early fifties, they, that was, that was what they made. That was a bread and butter. Like, there was going to be like seven Western films that year. And they're all going to basically be the same thing, starring a guy named Gene or, <laughs> or uh, Roy or, or John or something like that. And he was going to be gruff and tumble and no nonsense. And he'd probably shoot some minorities and it, you'd be okay <laughs> with it because you didn't think critically about the fact that the genocide of the native Americans had just finished up a few years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that it was your parents that did it. Um, the reason the that you know fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the good, the bad, and the ugly are so widely considered, I believe at least a fistful of dollars and uh, good, the bad, and the ugly are on the AFI's top 100 films list, um, is because they did something different. They were telling stories that you know they had a lot of artistry behind them. They had like style and pizzazz. Um, and the heroes weren't the typical heroes you were getting. You know, Clint Eastwood was not cut from the same mold, of the same cloth as John Wayne, uh, Roy Rogers, and Gene Autry. Mm-hmm. Which is funny. He got his acting start on like the most stereotypical of <laughs> of um, Western shows, Rawhide, like where he played Rowdy Yates. Yeah, I I can hear the whip crack in my head. <laughs> But not from the original show, from the Blues Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> that that too. <laughs> That's where more of my experience with Rawhide comes from. Um, I mean, do you think I'm, I'm right there? I do. I do like, like I said, is it's tough to like. You want to hit. You want to hit those notes of like that good genre stuff. Like if you're gonna make a western, you want those like long scenes of kind of nothing like really i don't know letting the movie breathe um like we've both been watching the mandalorian and so like here's my thing with genre is apparently i'm just too dumb to pick up on a genre the first time i watch something so like when i was watching the mandalorian and and light spoiler warning for the mandalorian in terms of like pacing i'm not going to discuss plot but there's there's a there's a stretch of time in that show where it really is just like 
two beings walking through the desert for minutes on end. And at first blush, you think like, well, okay, I thought, wow, this is really kind of slow and a little boring. (laughs) And then like my dumb idiot brain needs to hear like, this is a Western, you moron. And then I'm just like, this is great. I love all of this. More walking through the desert, please. So it's funny that you kind of bring that up. I was just seeing a, a really, a really cold, terrible take that it happened on Twitter where someone was like insisting that the Mandalorian is a space samurai film. And then like someone from the actual production is like, it's also a Western. Yeah. I mean, like, samurai, samurai and Western are like not totally separate genres. No, I mean, there's literally a samurai Western movie with Toshiro Mifune and Charles Bronson in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, hey, we covered a samurai Western in a Sukiyaki Western Django. We did, in fact, cover a samurai <laughs> Western, the most samurai of the Westerns. It is very samurai and very Western. But um, I think another thing that makes a genre film is, you know, it has to elevate it like in my opinion, the reason like we remember them, even though they might be a genre film is because it elevates the, the, the source material to a different level and a different interpretation. So like Martin Scorsese, at least for, he has a genre that he works in and it's crime gangster mob movies. And some of his hour. (laughs) (laughs) I have not watched the Irishman yet, but uh, referencing to what I feel is truly his best film even if it didn't get the accolades it deserved the goodfellas goodfellas mm-hmm. is a classic tale um that was told all throughout the 30s and earlier um of a young man coming to age in the time of you know organized crime his mm-hmm. his story was transposed a bit it starts in the late 40s early 50s and ends in the the late 70s early 80s um, but it's hitting those same notes of like, oh, family, brotherhood, togetherness and all that, while also being like a deconstruction of like the mythology around those characters. Like they, there are no heroes within that story that you have a protagonist that you follow who is a demonstrably yeah. terrible person. That's he, true. He has very few, if any, redeeming qualities. And at the end of that movie, he makes no apologies for the life he's led and sees no problem with the way he led it. Yeah. The thing that he complains about most is how now I can't get good pasta. It's always egg noodles and ketchup, and I'm a regular schmuck like everyone else. <laughs> like, did you not just remember your whole life where you were a terrible person and bad things happened to you and good friends of yours died? Maybe this is what you deserve. Yeah, and then I I love the fact that it ends with like the fact that the real Henry Hill was rearrested in Seattle because he broke his probation and was dealing drugs again. <laughs> he's got to get he's got to get that good pasta and you know, it's going to get it the only <laughs> way he knows how. Um so yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting that I, I feel that, uh, as I was talking about that, genre films work when the people making them grew up with the original inspiration. So, you know, Martin Scorsese grew up on the mean streets of New York, knowing people that were good fellas, not being too far removed from Henry Hill. However, mm-hmm. he chose he went to school, film school, and distilled the stuff he knew into his films. 
similar with um like uh George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, all um, the new kids of Hollywood, by the way, where when they were younger, they saw these versions of films, you know, for George Lucas, he saw these space operas and read those serialized um, stories in, in sci-fi magazines and like the flash Gordon stuff. And he wanted to write his version of it. George Lucas, or excuse me, I just said, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, he saw those old adventure serials with the pulp heroes wearing, you know, going to ancient, you know, ruined civilizations and getting involved in locals and, and two-fisted brawls. And he wanted to make his version of that. So he made Indiana Jones and George Lucas made Star Wars. Yeah. With I think it, it definitely comes as an impetus from your childhood. Yeah. And now, like, and you definitely get... Like, I feel shades of that when I watch, like, the new Star Wars and, and uh, what was episode seven called? The Force Awakens. Yeah. Um, which is basically just a rehash of episode four, like, embarrassingly so, I think. But I loved it because, like, that's the genre, you know, from my childhood when I grew up watching that original trilogy. Yeah, I think... As a side point to that, I think the the criticism that these two films receive, uh, uh, seven and eight, while some of it may be just from a critical standpoint, the people that are loathing like the changes, quote unquote, that Disney has made, are completely missing the point that this this trilogy of films is not targeted at you and your age. It is targeted for the kids that weren't born when the prequel trilogy came out and weren't alive for when the original trilogy came out or were only around for when it was re-released. Yeah. In that classic star Wars template of targeting kids with toys. Yeah. I mean, that's why BB eight's in there. Yeah. BB eight and all that. And that's why baby Yoda is there. Spoiler. (laughs) The other thing I think it's important to consider, like when making a genre film is I feel like there's a cycle to genre. Like, you go you go up you know in in the graph in my mind the upswing is you know innovation 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 and then there's like this return to like remember the classics and and you know let's go back to our roots there's too much innovation we're going to regress to the bigger yeah. staples of the genre and at least for me like with the irishman which is very much like without giving any of the plot away is very much like a genre film it's similar in structure to Goodfellas where it's like, we're going to take a long time and examine this guy's entire life, even though maybe the most exciting parts only make up half of the movie. Um, and I, for me, it was too quick to come back to those classics or maybe I just, I obviously don't have the same experience that everyone else does with those genre films, but it was too, too soon to return to that three and a half hour staple of, well, I mean, filmmaking. Goodfellas is not actually a long film. I think it's maybe two hours. Um, I think that that's possibly indicative of Martin Scorsese not being with the times, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I would, I, I do agree with you that there is innovation, 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 status quo, and then like a decline into mediocrity. Look at the zombie films that, you know, when we were a bit younger, they were going through a renaissance and a reimagining. We had the remake of uh, Dawn of the Dead. We had George Romero putting out new films that were probably more mediocre than they were good. Um, and then we have things like 
I think that you can always look at it when these upswings and downswings as uh, there is one film that perfectly encapsulates everything and makes everything that come after it inferior. And for the mm-hmm. zombie genre, that's Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Completely. It's from a place of love, respect and understanding that films that have later tried to do humorous zombie films, while they may be good, like Zombieland, they mm-hmm. don't quite hit the same notes because in Shaun of the Dead, the zombies are still treated very like a very serious, real threat. And the humor is used to kind of diffuse that for a bit. But when push comes to shove in the third act of that film, there's some very serious, heavy acting that, like, pulls on your heartstrings unless you're just a shallow dead motherfucker. <laughs> so when you say like a return to mediocrity, do you mean like, are you saying that like a return to the more core elements of the genre makes it mediocre? Or are you just saying like it get, it gets too far away from maybe what those core elements are? I think when I say return to mediocrity, I'm talking about they're just pumping them out because it's popular at the time. Like right now, okay. superhero films, I think, there were in the the build up to Endgame. There were some really good superhero films that were telling good stories. Now, yeah. I feel like we're gonna be on a, a plateau with a decline slowly because people like you and me, like I know, like our age group, I don't care to dedicate another ten years to another thing. Yeah. Like I like I saw Spider Man Far From Home in the theaters and I kinda wanted that to that's the last one. I have no desire to see any upcoming superhero films that are gonna be within the next year. Yeah. I think I think it's tough with Endgame because like that because it's wrapping up this like, you know, ten plus years of films, like a return to a return to forms almost like mandated like but it, almost sure but at the same time like spider-man far from home was unfortunately bland after that it's like we've gotten this thing and now we want this thing and they're doing the, a very comic book like storytelling of like you do the big combined event where everyone's books tells the tells their version of the story and there's the mainline story and all that. And now we're, we're, go, we're, we're detangling the, the, the massive, you know, water watershed moment and change with these individual films, how they're all reacting to it. It's like, I, I understand why they did it. And I love Tom Holland as Spider-Man, but I am mm-hmm. kind of done with it. Like there, there are too many of them. It's too, commercialized not that comic books were never not commercial i think that's what people mistake with disney's handling of it i think that they're using this property the way a corporation would use this property to make them money Um, yeah uh i just i think they need to take a longer break and not continually announce what's going to be happening next and next and next and next and next yeah. It definitely used to be, this is an entire side topic of the, the, the base conversation, used to be you would see a trailer for a film. Oh, I want to see that film. When's it coming out? Oh, the date's right there? Okay, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that in, the, in my you know TV guide or in my, <laughs> my newspaper. Right. When it came out, you watched it. 
You're like, oh, that was a good movie. You talked about it with the people you watched it with, and then you forgot about it. Or maybe you didn't if it was a good enough film. And the award season would come around, you'd be like, oh, that movie that I really enjoyed, it's getting the things I think it deserves. Yeah. Now, I know that there's going to be another Black Panther, another Thor, another Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, uh, another Ant-Man, another... Like, they're because they are doing this thing, rather than, I feel, using it to tell different stories, they're all telling a character's facet of that story. Yeah. To bring it back to the genre, I think The Mandalorian is a perfect example of how Star Wars is being done right. It's telling a story that is lower stakes, it's personal, it's smaller, but it's the kind of story you want to know about that universe. How does life work on the Outer Rim? How does a Mandalorian make his way in the galaxy? Right. Yeah, I I think uh, Far From Home struck me a little differently and maybe... I was more ready for it or not, not like, not like, Oh, you weren't prepared, but you know, it, it hit me at the right time where, you know, maybe it would have been better for you a couple of years separated, but I really enjoyed the return to kind of the classic Spider-Man where, Oh, right. He's a high school kid. He's got high school problems to deal with much in the same way the Spider-Verse did which is a sequel I'm very excited for. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, may, maybe we're just at different points in that, in that nostalgia site or that genre cycle that I hypothesized, which I'm sure isn't an original thought, but you know, I just, I, 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 I ha- there was nothing wrong with far from home, but I was watching a red letter media thing on it the other night that, there just hasn't been enough time to miss Tom Holland as Spider-Man mm-hmm. for it to hit as well as it could have because Homecoming is a great Spider-Man film. I think it nails the humor, the the back and forth with him trying to balance his daily life and the appropriate stakes for the hero. Whereas in a sense, Far From Home almost feels like it's taking the piss out of the giant thing that just happened. Right with the Mysterio storyline and what, you know, what happens at the end in London bridge and all that. It's like, we can't go back to those. We can't go home again, (laughs) I guess is the intent of that story. Yeah. So anyway, enough talk about Marvel movies. (laughs) (laughs) We had that snap. You could have spent a little more time in it with some of the heroes missing. And anyway, one, one genre I was ready for, some British crime thrillers. Proper, a proper villain movie. <laughs> exactly. I, I wish my British accent was better. I had one shining moment of British accent, and it was doing a dumb gangster in a D&D campaign, and then I lost that accent never to return to me again. Well, I'm um, sorry to hear that. <laughs> Put your Fs in chat for that accent. This episode's matchup is about slick opening voiceovers, comedic cuts, and being surprised that criminals have guns. So grab your mates, nip down to the pub for a pint of the dark stuff, and Bob's your uncle. It's time for Layer Cake versus Rock and Rollo. Uh, so what was uh, your experience with these movies before we watched them for the podcast? I saw Layer Cake when it was, I think, first on HBO syndication. Mm-hmm. So probably around 05, 06, about that time. Uh, I thought it was cool. Um, around that time, he was actually, uh, Daniel Craig is the the narrator or 
whatever no name um, right i was gonna ask what you want to call him <laughs> uh the narrator i think is a, a okay. fine thing to call him uh Quadruple he X. had just been tapped as james bond mm-hmm. and this is like the only major motion picture he was in beforehand i think he'd done some tv and stuff like that but he's you know very fresh faced in this film not so dog faced like he is in the 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 now bond films yeah time comes for us all daniel craig superstar status or not so um yeah i think at the time everyone was kind of comparing it to like oh it's a british you know attempt at a quentin tarantino-esque film and i'm like oh i don't think that's right and then with rock and rolla i think it uh it was on netflix uh around a few years obviously later it was just on Netflix for a long time. I was like, oh, I like mm-hmm. Guy Ritchie. I'll watch this Guy Ritchie film. Yeah. And yours? Um, mine, I I watched Layer Cake. It was right around the same time that I also watched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang <laughs> when I had the Netflix DVD subscription and I was just going through their list of thrillers and pretty much, because that was when I discovered that I love thrillers. Uh-huh. So I was just ordering every movie off of Netflix's thriller list, basically. Um, you said you said Daniel Craig wasn't in a big movie. Uh, he was in Laura Croft Tomb Raider in two thousand one. Oh yeah, that's right. So isn't he? He's is he a bad guy? It's Alex West. Oh, My that's long such a cousin. memorable name. <laughs> um, yeah, that was more, that was more meant as a joke. I don't think that a video game movie is a breakout role. Yeah, and Rock and Roller, I watched, I think, under the same circumstances as you, where it's like, oh, man, I love Guy Ritchie movies. I'm going to watch this. <laughs> and, you know, there's that. <laughs> there's what are my that. feelings about that movie? Um, so besides being linked by their IMDb score, uh, these movies are also separated by zero degrees because Tom Hardy's in both of them. Young, young Tom Hardy. A like... very young Tom Hardy before his... Before his glow up, I I think. Before his breakout role as Bronson. Or during the same time? I think Rock and Rolla was not that long after Bronson, or at the same time as it? I'd have to look it up. Um, but there's also another character that was in both movies, and that is actor Dragon Mikanovic? Mikanovic? I don't speak Romanian, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's actually Serbian. I don't speak that either. <laughs> Um, but he plays Victor, Yuri's assistant in Rock and Roller, as well as the character bearing his own name, Dragon, in Layer Cake. But outside of these actors who just are in both movies, uh, if we want to talk about Daniel Craig and Gerard Butler, well, they're linked through Tom Hardy because they were both in a movie. No, <laughs> <laughs> they're separated by two degrees. Uh, Daniel Craig was in Munich with Jeffrey Rush, who was in Gods of Egypt with Gerard Butler. There you go. There you go, indeed. Uh, so both of these movies are rated an unassuming 7.3 on IMDb, but one of them must be better than the other. Let's find out, uh, starting with Layer Cake. Layer Cake is a 2005, originally uh, released in 2004 in the UK, Ireland, 2005 worldwide. R- movie written and directed by Matthew Vaughn and uh, adapted from a novel by J.J. Conley, who also shares a screenwriting credit because he wrote the original screenplay. Starring Daniel Craig, Colomini, George Harris, and Sienna Miller. Matthew Vaughn is best known for Kick-Ass, The Kingsman series, X-Men First Class, Stardust, and this film, Lair Cake. 
He has been a producer on over 24 projects, including all the previously listed films. J.J. Conley has written Lair Cake, which this was adapted from, as well as the sequel, Viva La Madness, which has been acquired to be turned into a TV show of the same name. However, since the announcement in 2017, no further news has progressed. Lair Cake is the story of XXX, or the narrator, Daniel Craig, a mid-level drug dealer who has it all figured out. That is until Jimmy Price, Keith Cranham, or Kenneth Cranham, his boss, tells him to do a favor for an old friend of his, Eddie Temple, played by Michael Gambon, and recover Eddie's wayward daughter. Oh, and by the way, Eddie also needs him to go do business with the Duke, the exact opposite type of drug dealer to the narrator. Loud, flashy, obnoxious, and stupid. From there, the narrator must navigate an increasingly dangerous and out-of-control series of dealings that just might reveal the truth of the natural order to the layer cake. What a British crime thriller, huh? Um, yeah, it's... I, I, I really enjoy, like, the direction this movie takes. Like, I can understand the criticisms at the time of saying, oh, it's trying to be, you know all these other greater things. However, going back and watching it, it has such a good pace to it mm-hmm. that I think it definitely holds up and is better than it was originally perceived. Uh, it's nice to see Daniel Craig in roles that are not James Bond anymore. I think he he has a lot of uh, acting ability that you just don't see on display in most things. Like in this he's vulnerable he's manic he's trying to be suave he's uh flabbergasted like he plays it so well and it never breaks believability that he is a real person even with that opening narration like you can tell he's a smart intelligent calculated person who knows who he is and 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 just wants out he's like a guy that's like okay i got this plan i'm almost done with this plan as i'm done i'm gone yeah I've made my millions, you know, that's enough. I don't feel like getting shot or stabbed or beaten. So. Well, spoiler, almost all <laughs> those things happen to him in this movie. <laughs> it starts, Daniel Craig also has a fantastic voice as he does the voice for the intro uh, voiceover. Yeah. I almost but. get like the sense that he he's delivering this... Uh, this narration to like us at the end of the film because it kind of like dovetails and and wraps back Mm -hmm. around to that so he's like been describing this maybe to uh his love interest sydney yeah is it sydney isn't it sydney i'm just thinking of a sydney shaw from the next movie uh it sydney is ben wishaw it's a tammy tammy Sydney is uh, her boyfriend. Oh, that's right. So there is a connection in names. <laughs> there sure um, is. There's also a connection in tone and pacing. <laughs> yeah. These movies genre. are very similar. It's almost like they're genre films. Um, <laughs> apparently, something that uh, I, I, in some uh, further reading, originally this the script that J.J. Conley uh, turned in for the movie was like 320 pages. <laughs> And so that's why Matthew Vaughn was like, "Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write this as a movie for you because you're a novelist, not a screenwriter." Yeah. I think most scripts are typically what 100, 150 pages, something like that. They're not the yeah. they're not a book. 
<laughs> right. Um, no, I, I think it's interesting that this is like Matthew Vaughn's first big picture, and then he goes on to direct much more successful pictures. Like, the name wasn't familiar, and then I realized, oh, he did Kick-Ass. Oh, he did The Kingsman. Oh, he did X-Men First Class. Oh, he did Stardust. Like, all these films that I thoroughly yeah. enjoy. <laughs> I... For some reason, my first thought is always Vince Vaughn whenever I hear his movie, and then I picture, like, always tired Vince Vaughn directing The Kingsman, and I'm just like, this doesn't seem right. No, but it, 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 I, I feel this is definitely an interesting thing to look at because his voice and his style as a filmmaker, he hadn't found it yet. Uh, mm -hmm. You can see kind of, like, glimpses of him constantly. He definitely has a way with... Um, tragedy and comedy kind of going hand in hand with like yeah. witty characters that say the the smart thing and the right thing and the perfectly timed stuff um especially later on uh, i think his filmography goes layer cake stardust kick ass kingsman uh, or no x-men kingsman uh and that's i think he's got one feature in post-production right now yeah Okay, yeah. I had to double-check that Stardust was the movie I was thinking of, but it is S Sky Pirate Robert De Niro. Yeah, uh, <laughs> adapt adaptation of a, a Neil Gaiman book that is v beloved. And, yeah. and I I think he did a, a fairly solid job like catching the tone of Neil Gaiman books. Like, it, It's almost one of those things that looking back on his filmography and the stuff he's done, it's kind of a no-brainer for someone like him to adapt, adapt a Neil Gaiman book, because... Mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman does all those like comedy, tragedy, seriousness, and humor, like with like a biting wit to subvert the genre he is writing in. Yeah. So the fact that this is a genre film, he is subverting it because most of the time the main the lead actors in these genre films are like cocksure, self-assured, really good at what they do and not super flustered all the time. You know, they're, they're a gangster and they know like how to be a gangster. Whereas this, this is a guy that wants to be uh, on the straight and narrow. And it's like, drugs are just a fast way to get where I want to go. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was something I wrote down. Cause like, it's interesting that he did stardust because like, that's such a, it's not high fantasy, but it's, it's fantasy where I feel layer cake and Kingsman, besides the gadgets, are very, like, grounded, real yeah. films. Like, because in Layer Cake, you know, there's a clear distinction that these guys are just, like, they're selling drugs. You know, they're not the Green Beret, SAS, like, super gangsters that you see in, like, some other films. Yeah. There's a, a funny comparison to that is there's a scene where Colomini's, uh Gene character takes uh, the narrator home to give him a drink and you know have a talk over about what's going on and he shows him his gun collection mm -hmm. and he's like completely <laughs> blown away by it because earlier in the film in the opening narration he's like i hate guns i, I don't want to deal with them and i don't want to deal with the people that like them for the most part right. and which is funny that gene's one of his close friends and confidants <laughs> um yeah however the direction that Matt gun yeah, the direction that Matthew Vaughn gave to Daniel Craig at this one scene where he's like moving around and the jeans uh, flat and got, like was 
handle it like James Bond would. <laughs> and then he becomes James Bond. So it's like, it's a little kismet or like uh, serendipitous that like, oh, tell him to act like James Bond. It's like, oh, hey, that guy in that Lair Cake movie, he'd make a good James Bond. Right. Um, yeah, that was another thing that definitely stuck out to me. I wrote down all the scenes of Daniel Craig pointing guns at the camera must have had a very different feeling originally before he before he portrays James Bond like a year later. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Like there's um, the more modern uh, covers for the DVDs or, you know, whatever have you. They mm-hmm. have kind of a vaguely James Bond look to them. They usually featured Daniel Craig's face holding or the gun is somewhere present when literally he uses it for one, like for two scenes. And he's not even like very well-versed in firearms in this, but like, Oh, you gotta, you gotta bring them in with the thing they know. Right. It's just interesting how the covers change with the times to reflect a different audience that would appreciate the actor for different things. Like, People probably watched this before Casino Royale came out just because Daniel Craig was in it and now have watched it after it because like, oh, Daniel Craig was in a crime movie. I wonder what that's like. Or, you know, if you're watching on Netflix or something, you just finish a Daniel Craig James Bond movie. It's like, hey, maybe you'll enjoy this other movie with Daniel Craig in it. Yeah. Or it'll just tell you some random bullshit anyway, (laughs) because (laughs) apparently whatever movie I finish, I might also like The Irishman right now. It's like, no, I don't have three and a half hours to dedicate to a film. I just finished Escape from New York. Don't think that's anything like The Irishman, actually. I I did appreciate Layer Cake's brief hour 45. That was... That is something to say about both these films, is that they tell their story very quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, There's not a lot of wasted shot or, like, pandering or... um, But there's a very nice clip and economy of the scene in Lair Cake that uh, I just enjoyed. You know, it's like there's that scene in the uh, the diner with the Duran Duran music playing. <laughs> yes. Which is, is perfect juxtaposition to what is going on in the scene. But like, there's not like five minutes of them just sitting there chatting about about what's going on. It's like, no, they're at the diner to do a thing. And then this this other character enters and we're left wondering, like, what the heck was that ultraviolence there for? <laughs> yeah, that dude polishes off a full English in 10 seconds. Oh, God, he, it was also so disgusting. Like, Daniel <laughs> oh, Craig yeah. has the perfect face through that scene. Like, <laughs> this guy's gross. Why is he sharing a table with us? Yeah, he's uh, sc- and then, scraping the beans with his bread. It is just, like, all in his facial hair. And oh. and then Morty is, there, there, is just sitting there stoic. Uh, played by George Harris, who yeah. I feel is, it's interesting is genre also has archetypal, um, archetypal roles. And this mm-hmm. movie, I could see literally, you could almost like transition the cast between these two films to fill the archetypes. <laughs> yeah. But, like, um, you got the main character, you got his two buddies who are in crime with him. Yeah. Uh, but funny enough, Tom Hardy's character would be the Tom Hardy character in either of these films. <laughs> yeah, he would. He just plays Tom Hardy in different I mean, situations. And he plays it so damn well. It's true. But uh, George Harris, like, I, I thought he did a great role as this, like, this older gangster that was uh, 
you know, he's someone that, that the narrator trusts because he's been at it for a while. He knows the stakes. He he was sent away for a long time. Yeah, is it like 10 years I think he did? Also, there is literally a parallel with both these films, which is a minor spoiler, where the overboss of the lower level criminals that we are following is an informer to the police to maintain their <laughs> position and is constantly sending away the guys under him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, genre films. <laughs> oh, the soundtrack also, both these films. Just oh, the great fantastic, magnificent. Love it. I think the I do distinctly remember the first time watching Layer Cake was the first time I had heard in isolation or in given its own due, Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. Which is, it's an interesting use for it, where it's like getting ready to shag (laughs) and then getting rudely uh, interrupted by room service. (laughs) Heavy air quotes implied. Um, I really, I also really enjoy in this movie, like, when big criminals get taken down by like small stuff, like oh, yeah. like Al Capone, you know, famously went down for tax evasion, uh-huh. like any anything along those lines, I'm a hundred percent on board for. And I felt that like this movie has a very good like sort of unraveling of this web. Yeah, I like that Jimmy Price is undone mostly because of his own arrogance and greed, and he gets involved in a a land venture to like get precious minerals from like an unstable southeast economy, or like was it Africa? Uh, I believe it was African. Yeah, uh, an unstable African economy, and so him and his you know former buddy from the neighborhood, uh, they buy out. You know, the, they, they grease all these palms, but then things go tits up. It's like, it's out of anyone's control. Like, nothing we can do about it. Yeah, and, those damn Eastern Bloc communists. Yeah. Unfortunately, he had invested all his money. So that, like, it colors why he so wants the narrator to be the middleman with this pill deal with the Duke, who is mm-hmm. not someone that the, the narrator clearly ever likes dealing with and ever does deal with. Yeah. And, like, their whole thing goes south. I mean, well, they were meant to go south from the start. They just. They, they very. The, it's. This movie juxtaposes the types of criminals that you actually. I feel like J.J. Conley, if he wasn't a criminal, knew criminals of various stripes well enough <laughs> to write it. Because, like, it kind yeah. of is that juxtaposition in the world. Like, you either get the flashy, flamboyant drug dealers that everyone wants to know the name of, like, in real life, a la Pablo Escobar. He mm-hmm. loved being what he was, and he wanted everyone to know his name. Or you get the super serious, smart ones, a la the Kali cartel, who you didn't even know they existed until Pablo Escobar died. Yeah. <laughs> it has that feeling of, like, it's just so easy. Just deal drugs. You just make three kilos into five and then you sell it like, duh. Yeah, but <laughs> the kind of people that get involved in drugs are not usually the kind of people that have ideas of retirement and long-term risk management analysis in, in their mind. It makes me feel like I could deal drugs. Like if I can just get like 
a nice flat, a tailored suit, an Audi estate car. <laughs> Sign me up. I mean, really, I, I, I do think the, the, the movie bookends with the narration saying you need to be a good middleman. That's how you make it in the drug business. And like having watched all of the original Narcos, not Narcos Mexico. I'm sorry, everyone that the guys that did the best in that were the guys that could get the product from point A to point B. They usually, if they wanted to, they could have gotten out at any time. Yeah. I, so let's talk about the ending a bit, uh, for right. greater yeah, your last, last chance to get out before we just brazenly talk about how this movie wraps up. I like the, the overall action leading up to the, the, the conclusion of the film, like, it feels like, man, how is he going to get out of this? And it all feels very intelligent and smart. It's like he very neatly wraps up his end of it, getting out mm. from everyone's thumb until at the very end he gets under the thumb of one last big guy. But it's not like, oh, I want you under my thumb because you're dangerous. It's like, I want you under my thumb because you're so good at what you do. You're going to work for me rather than anyone else because you're so good at what you do. So like... The movie, like the movie itself, like I said, is just like this, just mess. Um, it's, I went a little poetic and described it in my notes as a Gordian knot filled with mousetraps and dominoes because <laughs> it is like insane start of World War One levels of interconnectedness. Right. Like you start off very simple from his end. And it's, it's basically the story is how do we screw over our protagonist character in ways that constantly make him have to grow and become a, a different character to navigate it. Yeah. Because he has he has to get comfortable with guns. He has to get comfortable with the, the people that he doesn't normally talk to or even see or deal with throughout all of this. It is basically removing our character from his comfort zone. Yeah. And like this, fi this final solution, just, just a terrible term the final resolution is like it's not clean either it's super messy and you need like this messy solution to fix this messy problem right where he like when i first watched it i always like i remember not thinking like wait a minute are they did they just stage a false flag and pretend like no those two guys that he dealt with earlier are actual bent cops yeah and so he just had them, he gave them their position and had them maybe not run as good as they could have and get away in a very believable way to help end this. Mm -hmm. Oh, I also, I also looked it up and bent is British slang for being gay, by the way. Okay, crooked then. <laughs> yeah, and it's long form is behind on the rent. Wow. That's, so, that's, that's some Cray Brothers shit. So when, um... What's his nuts? The big boss guy asks uh, when Jimmy asks, you know, Daniel Craig's character, "Oh, are you, you know, are you a poof? Are you behind on the rent?" It's like the same question twice. Huh. Fun Interesting. Fact. Um. However, like the, these ecstasy pills that have been the MacGuffin throughout the the majority of the thing, like it's interesting. Daniel Craig's character is like the only one that doesn't really want him. <laughs> he's, like, isn't there a, a a point where he's like, "The fuck am I going to do with?" Uh, you know, ecstasy a and MDMA ecstasy pills. Yeah. Like it, he outlines all the, all the shit he has to go through to like, 
you know, we got to find a buyer. We got to, you know, repackage them all. We got to, you know, it's like, they're just a hassle. They're not good. Yeah. Whereas the, the Duke who pulled a job to get all these pills thinks he's sitting on a gold mine and is unwilling to accept like, no, it's not as much as you think it is. <laughs> yeah. You don't, I mean, you I, don't I, sell them for how much you get them in the club. Yeah, the bulk price of them is not the price that you are going to get. <laughs> it's just basic economics. Yeah. Clearly, as a man who calls himself the Duke, drives around in a, a bright yellow Range Rover, and and wears shitty track suits, uh, yeah. he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. Um, however, he, the actual resolution of the film is he gets, he gets boned by... The what is what is that character's by, uh, name? Gene and his uh, associate. Well, not by Gene. Gene is perfectly. Gene and his are are friendly with him. It's the Eddie Temple. Eddie Temple fucks over the narrator and his crew. Mm-hmm. Because rather than pay him the three million pounds that these these bulk price pills are worth that they have gotten away with, he's like, no, I'm taking them because I'm owed them. And because I'm at the top of this layer cake, you get shit on. Yeah. It's just the way it goes. It's like, I'm, you're I'm, getting too big for your britches. You're going to be taught a lesson. You know, you get two years in jail. You get four years in jail. You get... You're, you're confusing Jimmy Price and Eddie Temple. Yeah, but it's the, it's the same, it's the same, oh, like... Yeah. Same mentality. However, yeah. Eddie Price is not like... Or Eddie Temple, Jimmy Price. Eddie Temple <laughs> is not doing, like no, fuck you, I'm better than you. He's like, no, this is a compliment because if I didn't like you, my guys out there with their guns on you, they'd just shoot you. Yeah. So because but, you're good at what you yeah. do, here's, here is a, a lifetime membership to that posh club that Jimmy used to be a member of. Basically saying you get to take over Jimmy's racket. The price for right. doing it is the, those pills. Yeah. So he has he has this complicated, messy solution that kind of wraps everything up by in a bow, and then he gets done in by a guy who likes guns. Well, no, no, he gets done in by Sidney, who is an idiot. He's the Duke's <laughs> nephew. Yeah, but I mean, who still uses a gun? That's like, I think the distinction there. Yeah, it's very heavily implied that he dies because he's bleeding out. No one's helping him, and then it fades to white, which is cinema language for death. However, yeah. in the original, it's ambiguous enough, like where he gets him is like no major arteries or anything like that. And if he got us aid, he'd probably be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the other book by J.J. Conley is actually the sequel, because in Lair Cake, the book, the narrator recovers from his gunshot and leaves England. Okay. And, a- and apparently the book... Uh, the sequel is like every time I try to get out, they keep dragging me back in. Like someone is coming to look for him in America. So, yeah, classic Al Pacino. I've never, I, I, I just, I'm not a fan of the ending the way it is. And apparently, test audiences wanted him to get punished. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. But like, I'm a fan. I'm personally like, no, he's a likable enough guy, and he only does like bad things to other bad people. Like, to me, the character of Jimmy Price is way worse than the character of the narrator, because while maybe Jimmy Price doesn't kill someone, 
Jimmy Price is a piece of shit who's informing on the other people on his side of the law to keep himself out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, Eddie Temple is a much more quote unquote upstanding character because he he tells you what it is, he makes his threats, but if you do what he wants you to do, you also benefit from it. Like there is a there is definitely an air of oh he's a a proper gangster and that there there's the old way of doing things. Um, whereas Jimmy Price gets other people to do his dirty work and doesn't care about the the consequences as long as he gets his. Mm-hmm. I yeah, for me, like I I thought about this ending for like a good forty five minutes. Like huh? I was pacing around the house. I was just like trying to unpack all the feelings from it and where I kind of landed is just like you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Like, yeah, but like he, my biggest thing is like, he never wanted to deal with people like Sydney and the Duke anyway. And it was because of the auspices and on the request demand of Jimmy price that he gets put in the same realm as them anyway. Mm -hmm. So had he not, he would have been fine. Yeah. Had Jimmy Price not made shitty decisions that made him have to deal with the Duke anyway to possibly get these pills that he was going to double-cross the narrator on anyway and not pay him, just like Eddie Temple didn't pay him. However, Eddie Temple had the, the, the good graces to do it to his face rather than try to be tricky and sly about it. Right. That's actually also a bit of a, a thing both these films parallel is the more nefarious the individual tries to be the worse their outcome is because <laughs> like if if you're a duplicitous double dealer both these films say that you don't deserve what you get and you deserve the worst fate possible yeah yeah for me the ending was kind of it it isn't like the you know typical uh, like rocks fall, everyone dies. Kind of like here's right. the Deus Ex Machina p- punishment out of nowhere. It, at least for me, it it fit with the story, and it's like these are the exact reasons that like the narrator didn't want to get wrapped up in this stuff. Yeah, like here it is, and here's his just desserts. See, to me though, I want him to get out of it clean because he never wanted to be part of this world anyway, and he was just using it as a means to an end. He's not evil and is not in deserving of the punishment that he has given. He doesn't deserve to get shot by Sydney who like, I can only like, why does, why is Sydney the one that pulls the trigger on him? Was it because of, because he stole his girl or was it because he thinks that the narrator killed his uncle? Like, cause neither of those is really true. The girl wanted to be with <laughs> the narrator anyway. Yeah. It takes two to tango in that situation, but yeah. Right. Uh, and the Duke was killed by Gene all. And like that, like the Duke got done in pretty tamely compared to what would have happened had the, the guys gotten a hold of him. <laughs> yeah. I, I always took it to be just payback, like for stealing his girl, you know, but then why doesn't he shoot the girl as well? You know, the heart does mysterious things. Also, he could have, the narrator could have left Sydney to be picked up by the cops when they were escaping on the boat, but the narrator is the one that holds onto him and drags him into the boat. <laughs> That's true. 
So it's like you're repaying the guy that saved you from getting clipped by shooting him. Anyway, I ju- I just don't feel I feel like a gunshot fade to black would have been better because it's then it's like more open to interpretation. This ending really reminded me uh, of the movie London Calling, where mm. Colin Farrell plays a put upon former gangster who just got out. And everyone's trying to pull him back in, and he's trying to go straight. He's trying to be, you know, I'm a proper, a proper lad. I've I've been a few scraps. I know how to do violence to people. I don't really want to do that anymore, but I'll do it if someone pays me to do it. And so he's going straight by being a bodyguard for a celebrity, played by Kira Knightley, who's basically playing Kira Knightley. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of it, he gets done in by someone completely minor for something completely unrelated so it feels very similar and it's just unsatisfying to me like we are in a post crime doesn't pay style of filmmaking and storytelling the 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 film codes are no longer in place where well if they're in crime you gotta show them you know get get punished for it yeah i mean i i felt satisfied but i it's a contentious ending for sure. Like, I just, I'm just blown away though that test audiences wanted that ending because I imagine then that there is an ending where he just walks out and it just fa- it just cuts to credits. Yeah. I'd much well, I mean, rather that ending. You said in the book that it he also gets shot at the end. Or? He gets shot, but it very clearly is like he survives, recovers, and goes to America. Okay, so less less ambiguous. Like, yeah. you would show the America part at the end of this. Well, I would have preferred, like, ambulance sirens or seeing someone run up to, like, apply pressure on the wound to make okay. it a little more ambiguous. Because then you can still do a fade to white. And it's like, huh, did he not make it? Or did he make it? Or maybe do something like fade to white uh, heartbeat monitor. Yeah. Instead of this inception, did he, didn't he, nonsense. Well, to me, because of the language of the cinema and the 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 scene, the the blocking and the the expressions, and then the fade to white, I always have taken it as, oh, he died. So yeah. thanks for wasting my time. <laughs> like he should have just let Gene beat him to death at that point. If if you're just gonna have a random nobody do him in, right? So. I mean that that's my take on it. I I I don't dislike the film overall. I just I I'm not satisfied with the way the ending works out. Yeah. A fantastic movie. Uh so stick around right after the break. Hold up. We... Hold up before the break. Oh. One last thing. This movie utters the word fuck 210 times in its hour 40 minute runtime. That's mm-hmm. one fuck for every 30 seconds. Scarface, the movie that holds the record for number of fucks uttered in a movie, is 230 fucks. However, it only averages out to a, a, a fuck every one, one minute 40 seconds. So therefore, there is a denser population of fucks in this movie than in the current record holder, which is impressive. Yeah, which is why we need a new metric, fucks per minute. I'm starting a brand new record book, match cut. Bar bet book of records. This is the only entry. <laughs> Fucks per minute. There you go. 
So I, I think it's a good it's a good metric. Uh, Quentin Tarantino films would definitely be up there. Yeah, we talked about that one episode of The Wire. Yes, not a, not a movie, but high fucks per minute. All fucks per minute. <laughs> <laughs> the only only utterance is fucks. So come back after this fucking break. We'll talk about rock and roller. <laughs> See you then. So Rock and Rolla, Rock and Rolla, is a 2008 movie written and directed by Guy Ritchie, starring Gerard Butler, Tom Wilkinson, Thandy Newton, and Mark Strong. Addy, uh, actually? I have Thandy. No, like I, 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 I don't doubt that that's how it is spelt, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure her name is pronounced Thaddy. Okay. Thaddy Newton and Mark Strong. Uh, Guy Ritchie, as we covered in the last episode, best known for Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, and Sherlock Holmes. Uh, fun fact, Matthew Vaughn, director of Layer Cake, was the producer for Lock, Stock, and Snatch. So definitely got some British crime movie experience <laughs> uh, with those two movies. These two movies are just zero degrees of bacon. <laughs> they are. <laughs> um. Play them both at the same time while listening to Dark Side of the Moon, and you're in for a an experience. A weird pastrophony of noise. <laughs> uh, that was another podcast idea I bandied around for a while, listening to or watching different movies while listening to Dark Side of the Moon. I think you mentioned that once, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Inception is the only other movie I found that like kind of works in a couple <laughs> key moments. Uh, back to rock and roller, though. Lenny Cole is the man you've got to go through if you want to get something built in London. So when Russian developer Uri Omovich comes to London with plans for a new building, he comes to Lenny. However, Lenny isn't the only one looking to make some money off of this meeting. Uri's accountants, a group of local toughs, and one drug-addicted rock star are all looking for a bit of the action. However, there isn't enough money, influence, and lucky paintings to go around, so someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. So I, um... What what do you did you like this film? It was a heck of a seven out of ten. I think my problem with this film, and I liked it at the time I first watched it. I was like, oh, I, I love this. I love Guy Ritchie style. I was a bit on a, a Guy Ritchie kick. Mm -hmm. Watching it again, especially after Lair Cake, it feels like this is Guy Ritchie trying to do Guy Ritchie. Yeah, it, it feels like he had lost the magic after going a little bit different and a little uh, like after being married to Madonna in all honesty. <laughs> yeah. um, and that it's, she slowly sucked the life force out of him to, to fuel her, her big fake, butt, <laughs> to fuel her dark demonic powers. Um, I think he had kind of lost his roots and maybe that the idea behind this was to get a return to his roots. Cause I believe the film he did before this is um revolver yeah okay so he so between so he had done he did snatch married madonna did madonna shit this movie called swept away which looks three, lame 3.6 rated comedy romance and he did suspect he did a nike short and then he did rock and rolla and mm. then after rock and rolla he got he got 
tapped to do Sherlock Holmes, which yeah. love Sherlock Holmes as we've already covered. Yeah, which was a great um, a great return to form. In terms of just style, it felt very fresh. However, this felt very much like, oh, I used to be the guy that made these movies. Yeah. And he had lost his mojo, in a sense. Uh, I mean, not... yeah, Sherlock Holmes, <clears throat> both Sherlock Holmes movies and then The Man from Uncle was a strong, like, three movies. Then you got King Arthur. Then you have Aladdin, the live-action movie we talked Don't about. Me. <laughs> and then there's this movie coming out called The Gentleman, which really looks like Guy Ritchie doing more Guy Ritchie. So, you know... Hopefully it'll be closer to a reinvigorated Guy Ritchie than, like, it feels like... I just, it feels like these these characters were written for different actors. It feels like he wanted to get Jason Statham back to be, you know, one, two, and other yeah. characters. Not that Gerard Butler does a bad job. I just think... There's no Vinnie Jones, you know? There, there's no there's no Vinnie Jones kind of character. And let, like, I mean, let's face it, Snatch is really just him remaking Lockstock. Yeah. But with more money and not independent. Yeah, that's true. And it's fantastic. I mean, yeah. I mean, Snatch is fantastic. And that's one of those films that if you have a friend that has watched Snatch recently, they will quote it endlessly. You might not even know they quote it. One that I love doing is, no thanks, I'm sweet enough. It's <laughs> a good one. We should talk about rock and roll. <laughs> we should talk about rock and roll. I'm going to um, say, first off, they did Mark Strong dirty with that hair. I don't know what that decision was, but Christian Chalmers, who did hair and makeup, I'm calling you out. <laughs> I think um, the movie should have focused on Mark Strong's character more. Mm -hmm. He should have been the, the Jason Statham Turkish or the Jason Statham other guy from... Uh, revolver uh, that is the main thrust of it, and the other cast of characters should have revolved around him. Yeah, However, like he does. He does the opening narration. Like it's just that's you just make him the main character. I think the movie. It again, my my opening criticism and critique is it was Guy Ritchie trying to be Guy Ritchie, mm -hmm. and like not having it all in place i like the characters i love the 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 idea of the wild bunch but i feel like the wild bunch should have been in their own film this this feels like uh, uh a tentpole film of the guy Ritchie extended universe and we haven't <laughs> been introduced to any of these characters yet yeah you needed that you need the wild bunch movie or first you need you need the character stories then they come together in the wild bunch <laughs> <laughs> Well, and we know how he... this is done. There's a formula. Um, I, I remember in my mind this movie sticking out to me as oh Chris Chris Ludacris Bridges was trying to be more and more the actor because this is I believe the only film where he credits him he gets credited as, as just Chris Bridges. Yeah, because it's always Chris Ludacris Bridges or Ludacris, uh, and this is the film that he was like, no, I'm going to be a serious actor. He does right. a fine job. I think his role is a bit small, unfortunately. Like there again, I would have loved a whole movie of Jeremy Piven as Roman and Ludacris <laughs> as Mickey being American managers and producers in London. 
Yeah. But as it stands, you don't get enough time with them. Again, it would have been a really, uh, really interesting to have Johnny Quid played by Toby Cabell, who honestly, I would go gay for in this movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I feel like I, I definitely feel like this should have been a sequel to at least a Wild Bunch film because yeah. they seem like an interesting cast of characters. You mm-hmm. have. Like, where does one two get his name? Right. Where does you know? How did him and Archie meet? And how did you know Handsome Bob get in the mix and all that? And you know what exactly do they do? They seem like pretty proper, you know, thugs. Actually, yeah. This is the end of their arc as just like small time criminals wanted to get into the into the the legit game by buying real estate. Yeah. Straight up at the end of this movie, they tease a sequel. Name and everything. has a script for. Yeah. But the problem is, all these actors went on to be bigger. mm Mm-hmm. So Gerard Butler got involved in the Olympus, you know, Olympus Down, Olympus Fallen, and Angel Fallen trilogy, whatever. Um, Yeah. Idris Ilba goes on to be Idris Ilba. (laughs) Criminally underused in this movie. Exactly. And Tom Hardy is Tom Hardy, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Mark Strong will always work with Guy Ritchie, I feel like. will always make time to be in a Guy Ritchie movie. Um, yeah. But it's just unfortunate that, like, the three main members of the Wild Bunch, in terms of, you know, screen time, go on. And now we can't do a sequel to find out what, you know, Toby Cabell is going to be up to because I don't think he's into anything at the moment. He was know- in Fant Forstick, which is a uh, not Vince Vaughn, Michael Vaughn, Matthew Matthew Vaughn produced. Right. Um, I think he's probably in a lot of British productions of stuff. I mm-hmm. thought he was criminally under. Uh, this movie doesn't have enough time for all its characters. Yeah. Whereas Snatch felt like, I want more of this, and you could give me more, but what you gave me was perfect for what it was. Mm-hmm. This feels like, I want to know more about this character, I want to know more about that character. I, I need, maybe need less of uh, Lenny Cole. Like, Tom right. Wilkinson, amazing actor, but he's the villain. Why am I seeing so much of the villain? Also, Guy Ritchie has a, a fixation, I feel, with his gangster villains grabbing people by the balls and threatening them uh surely you mean the bollocks the bollocks sorry (laughs) um yeah no i i definitely feel that the focus should have been driven by one character and that character was mark strong's archie because he's the one that knows all these players Mm Hmm. yeah this yeah, for whatever reason, like either Gerard Butler wasn't up for it or it just wasn't written well, but he's not like he's not being the main character. Well, I don't I don't even think his the intent is for him to be the main character. This is clearly an ensemble film. Mm-hmm. And everyone acts well. All these actors are fantastic actors. Yeah. And they play their parts well. There just isn't yeah. enough of them. And it always feels like, well, I want to know more about the thing you just moved away from. <laughs> I want to see more of that. 
Yeah, they have. Yeah, I don't know if like they're just trying to like. Maybe they're trying to trade too much on stereotypes, and it's just like you know the character that this guy is representing, like so we're not going to go into it at all. You just should know. And I don't know if he was relying too much on that, or if he wanted it. Maybe he's too good at creating mystery around the characters, where it's like, no, 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 you got something here. Yeah. Um. It, it it's just it's it's not even bad. It's just you want more of certain aspects at least i did i wanted more of certain aspects less of others and then i don't feel like i get enough time with the characters to appreciate like their trials and tribulations like the wild bunch like why should i care about them trying to go straight or handsome bob going away or any of that when i haven't been enough time with them to be like like they, they fill in some backstory with conversation, tell, don't show, where apparently one, two went away and his mother like passed away when he was in jail. Yeah. And handsome Bob took care of his mother for him. Mm -hmm. And like, there's the scene at the end where it, it's like finally breaking down, like, oh, who's been sending all these guys away that were, you know, being, being, uh, you know, thugs in this area. And it's like, oh, they're getting all their, their sentencing and, like, the actors are selling it very well that, like, this is clearly, like, jail, even if it's, you know, jail in in England is, is not good. You lose parts of your life. Yeah. I mean, two years, five years. No, that's not a small amount of time. Like, even if it sounds small. And, like, I kind of would have loved maybe some casting gags where, like, the, was it? Were the characters the Jew twins that just get mentioned once, like yeah. towards the end there, like just show like maybe show two actors that we've never seen before, like going down for fourteen years, like to to again, like these are people these guys knew, so I can appreciate it. Yeah, perfect, perfect opportunity for like a small cameo, or like you know, remember in Snatch where they're like naming all these boxers that are unavailable, yeah. like they show quick clips of them. <laughs> Like crazy mad Eddie went insane. Went mad. <laughs> yeah, Mad Dog went mad. That's right. And and the gun shot himself. <laughs> yeah, and we see that. So yeah, who knows? Maybe Guy Ritchie needs to be even more Guy Ritchie. I just it feels like he lost his mojo a bit, and mm -hmm. maybe it took him being less involved in the writing to produce stuff that better uses his stylistic choices. Because like. The two Sherlock Holmes films, which apparently is supposed to be a trilogy. Right. But like Robert Downey Jr. just continued to explode, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Guy Ritchie needs to go even farther back to get actors who need two or three movies to blow up, not just his movie and they're out of there. Right. Um, like he's I, got like... he's got some great scenes. Like there's one that stuck out to me was that scene with Cookie where he's in like this clockwork clockwork orange style like blue lit like ultra bar or whatever you know talking about the myth the legend Johnny Quid yeah they they they're they're building him up like you don't see like why he's such a big rocker mhm mm you know what i mean it just it comes off more as he's a junkie yeah 
and like that they're, they're talking about him and you see some scenes where he's like oh he's he's very clearly talented and smart and so i can see people like when uh can't remember who it was tells roman and mickey like you should be thanking johnny because you know his album sales are selling 10 times as much as they were before he died yeah i think that's also cookie might be cookie yeah because they're going to cookie because cookie was his dealer Mm -hmm. um i think it's even that same scene yeah there's there there's not enough of what guy Ritchie did great in snatch was just all the intertwining stories like meeting up it feels like we're getting a cookie scene. You know, we're getting a wild bunch uh, bit right here. We're getting a, a Russian property uh, magnet bit right here. We're getting a Thaddy Newton bit right here. Um, the uh, it just feels very compartmentalized. The yeah. the closest you get to the the interweaving stories is when uh, Johnny when um, Lenny Cole has gone to Roman and Mickey to tell them you need to find my wayward stepson or else you're proper fucked. <laughs> yeah. And so when they're like, they're talking in their, in their sound booth, like with a show going on, they're like, you can't shut us down right now. We're looking for him right now. And on the screen out front of their door, Johnny Quinn is trying to get in to see the show. Yeah. And then straight up murders a dude and they still don't notice. Yeah, they notice after the fact that their bouncer has been like gutted Laid out in the street. Yeah. Um, also, Brit's like, what's what's the deal with not helping someone who's getting his shit wrecked? <laughs> Did you not want to lose your place in the queue? Is that it? It's it's all in the eyes. You got to <laughs> shit junkies. It's just there's some crossover with like ancillary characters here and there. Mm-hmm. Um. Also, I really liked those Russian like heavy hitters. <laughs> yeah, who just get killed, gory discretion shot, which was a shame. <laughs> it's like those guys are fucking machines. <laughs> they are the machine. <laughs> the machine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, Lenny's Lenny's got a real problem with immigrants and. I kept expecting that to pay off somehow. It's like Chekhov's immigrant or something like, right. But it kind of doesn't. I also felt that the, um, that Stella's just desserts are unjustified. Like not necessarily justified. Like why does she get ostensibly killed by Uri? Mm-hmm. who is like falling for her more than he should have like and they make a they make a note with him in his number two played by dragon um yeah. victor that you know the last two women cost you this much how much is this one gonna cost you <laughs> and it's like no one who knows in in love and all that and like i get that she's not like a good person because she's only messing around with one two because he's attractive Mm-hmm. And because she's in a marriage of convenience with a man who is homosexual, yeah. So she's his beard. <laughs> yeah, she's she's got some thoughts about that relationship, right? And it's like, so she's bad because she's taking advantage of a a, a Russian criminal. Like, what? Like, why does she get that end, but one two gets off scot free? 
Yeah. I mean, besides getting beat up by a couple of Russians. I mean, he looks like a guy who's been beat up a few times in his life. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Like, my biggest problem plot-wise with this movie is why do you steal the seven million twice? Maybe... That just like, and I get that she's new to the world of crime, and it seems like this easy taking candy from a baby thing. But like, do you think this isn't gonna come back on? Like, that just seems like phenomenally stupid. And, and maybe that's the movie like justifying why she she gets her her end is because mm-hmm. she's got so much hubris. She doesn't think that this stupid Russian would ever figure out that she's the one. And yeah. to be fair, had she not got the painting from one two, she would have been fine. Yeah, but apparently mm-hmm. that Russian also got killed by Archie, <laughs> who took yeah. over from Lenny when he yeah. killed Lenny. <laughs> it goes a lot of places right at the end, as it should is as is genre appropriate. That, um, that first just... heist for the seven million. The one where they just like, yeah, fuck off. <laughs> that's top that's, 10 movie heists of all time. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. They, she, uh, to, dis- to set the scene, one, two, and uh, Archie. Oh, excuse me, not Archie. Uh, Mumbles. Uh, Mumbles. One, two, and Mumbles uh, are tasked by uh, Stella, given the inside track on her two accountants that are about to do a large cash transfer to Lenny Cole from Uri Omovich. Uh, to get this property development going. So she decides to torpedo the deal by stealing the money, taking a 20% cut. Um, yeah. So one, two, and Mumbles show up, dressed as security guards, waiting right in front of the car that these guys are going to take. And then they just very calmly, casually, like, just leave, you know, leave the thing you're carrying, give us, <laughs> you know, and we're taking your car, this is a robbery. And he's like, fuck off. <laughs> of course... He's sitting there, and as he's getting all situated, getting everything, and you know, they st- like the guy, like the the, the two accountants are, play it perfectly. Like, wait, is is this real? Is this a robbery? <laughs> like, you you realize that he hadn't gotten the keys in the car yet, yeah. and so he opens the door, like <laughs> pulls his hand out for the keys. The guy gives him the keys, <laughs> and he then like clearly doesn't know how to drive stick all that well. <laughs> yeah, I can't get oh, into Oh, he doesn't reverse. know where the reverse is or how to engage the reverse lockout. <laughs> and so he opens the door again and asks him how to put it in a reverse. <laughs> I, have like, this, I have the same reverse lockout in my car. And yeah. that's like the first... Anytime I leave my car somewhere and someone's going to have to like move it, I'm like, all right, here's how you get into reverse. Do you then tell him, fuck off. <laughs> And they just, they're just, they're just kind of slack jawed and like dumbfounded at these two guys <laughs> that like, it's bold, but it's also like careless. Yeah. Um, I was a little annoyed when they, they do the next heist against the, uh, with the, the Russian bodyguards. Like, I mm-hmm. love the scene where the Russian bodyguards are like showing <laughs> all their scars at how hard they are. <laughs> yeah. But it's not even like, no, I got one better. It's like, oh, I got one of those too. <laughs> oh, let me see. Let me see. <laughs> Yeah, like I took a 30 cal in Grozny. Oh, that's from a stem grenade. 
And so, like, when these guys are, like, Terminator levels of, like, <laughs> unkillable, it's like, yeah, yeah, I understand that. A la uh, that sneaky fucking Russian from Snatch. Boris the Blade. Boris the Blade. I kind of just made that connection when you said it, that <laughs> they're basically, those two guys are fulfilling the Boris the Blade role. And even in the fact that it takes way more ammo to kill them than it should. <laughs> yep. Oh. Snatch. Um, uh, another another part of this movie that I really liked was the absolute power move that is, would you like a drink? Oh, I don't drink. Yes. <laughs> and so he's just left there sitting like, oh, fuck. <laughs> just pounding three fingers of, of whiskey all at once. Yep. So do you think he actually poisoned that whiskey or is that just like had too much to drink flushed face kind of? No, I think he got whiskey shits. Okay. Because he, he probably doesn't drink all that much either. And he was just given three fingers of like really high end whiskey, we're led to assume. Mm-hmm. And he it's just going right through him. <laughs> well, never, never a problem I've had with whiskey, despite my sometimes easily upset stomach. So I was I was just like, oh, is he really poisoned? Is it just too much alcohol? So. Yeah, it's it's a shame that we 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 can't. I feel like we're not saying as much about this movie as Lair Cake, but this movie, it feels like an inferior version of Guy Ritchie films done by Guy Ritchie, which is strange. It feels like <laughs> this was written for another director to do. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, and then they magically get the guy that they were trying to emulate. Yeah. Even though I'm pretty sure it was written by Guy Ritchie. It, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, not not based on anything either, as far as IMDb has to say. So yeah, I feel like this would be a much better story to adapt into a series than Snatch, which got adapted into a series. Yeah, that I that I haven't seen. I have not. No, seen nor that. have I. Isn't it like a Crackle exclusive or some <laughs> some such nonsense? Makes it makes sense. They would. That's how it would get made. Yeah. Whereas like this, there is there's clearly things that I am more interested in knowing about. Mm-hmm. The, the story it is telling me does not capture me as much as the characters' backstories do. Yeah. I mean, maybe the problem is that it was written by Guy Ritchie and he was too precious with his writing and really just needed an editor. Could be. Maybe he had become too big for his own britches. Uh, or just maybe his heart wasn't as in it. I think, again, it feels like we're constantly sharing time in other lesser stories than the stories we want to know. Like like I said at the beginning, like this is the, the rock and roller cinematic universe. And we should have had a Wild Bunch movie. We should have had a, a Johnny Quid movie. And we should have had a, a, a Roman and Mickey movie. Mm-hmm. And the Johnny Quid movie would work with the Roman Mickey movie, and and the Roman Mickey movie could work with a, a Wild Bunch movie. Yeah. Oh, another scene I did really like was uh, where Johnny is like breaking down what everyone's gonna do, like from Archie's slapping to like how they're gonna kill Ludacris and uh, Entourage. <laughs> Roman and Mickey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like. Like there's some there's some really solid Guy Ritchie stuff there. It's, it's just it's spread across a handful of scenes as opposed to like 
there's a collection of Guy Ritchie scenes that happen to make up a movie is a good way to describe this. Yeah, that could have been three to four different movies. One thing that also resonated really strange with me was when one two finds out that handsome Bob is gay. Yeah, and he he reacts very, very poorly to the news, mm-hmm. and very it it just was he trying to be like funny with that? Was he trying like, and it's like it's so well acted by by Tom Hardy like. Tom yes. Hardy is putting a performance in that is not worthy of that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom Hardy yo-yos between like four different emotions that I feel like someone in that situation may go through. Yeah, like and... this is a guy who's about to be sent away and he's like, I don't know if I'll, like he's dealing with that. He's dealing with this one too who's one of his best friends who he apparently also has an attraction to. Mm -hmm. And like when one, two pushes him to reveal what he's feeling, like he reacts in the worst way possible. Like this scene, if it was done differently is like a very heartbreaking scene because handsome Bob, not due to what he wants to do is pushed to say what he truly wants and one two then throws it back in his face and is like uh, disbelieving of it and then kind of takes the piss out of him a bit mm-hmm. like it's okay to be a poof you know <laughs> there's probably loads of poof is poofs in jail It'd be yeah. great for you it's like yeah that's yeah oh because he's gay he's just a deviant is it's just it's holding on to some really antiquated views on homosexuality yeah I mean, yeah, it's, it straddles that line because then, like, at the towards the back half of that scene, like, that's where he's like, okay, I maybe I should be more accepting of this. Right. He he comes to terms with it in a very a very adult way, and he does actually acquiesce, but he he has some very homophobic like reactions a little bit to it mm-hmm. because all 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 handsome Bob wants to do is slow dance with one two. <laughs> Yeah. And so he acquiesces to it. And it's like, you know, he he plays it like super like, no, I'm not a poof kind of thing, <laughs> which, yeah, people like that exist. But like the fact that he did it like shows a lot about him. Like this guy is one of my best friends. Of course, I'm going to do this for him. Yeah, he's but going like that away whole, for two years. That whole you better not tell anybody and like being super sensitive. And then they then they kind of flip it on its head where like, no, Mumbles and everyone knew the only one that didn't know was one, two. <laughs> yeah. Did you uh did you catch the scene during the credits? Oh no, I turned it off. What's the scene in the credits? <laughs> they show a very long cut of Handsome Bob that's... and One Two dancing together. That's right. Don't they like close down the club or something? Yeah. Well, they they pull out like this. The shot pulls out like very slowly, and it's just like it's them on this dance floor with like five or six other couples at this uh, gay club and then like they start pulling out and like the dance floor it turns out is like in the middle of this club and there's tons of seating like all around like everyone's just looking at them it's uh <laughs> it's pretty funny so like you can play that scene for laughs however i think in 2019 that the level of homophobia portrayed by gerard butler's one two character just doesn't resonate well with the audience and even when the film came out in 09 wasn't really appropriate yeah 
Like it, I, it just feels antiquated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and like that, that era I think was really kind of like a turning point, or at least it was for me, like as I was exiting high school and on my way eventually to go to college of like leaving behind that, the shitty 18 year old I was right. Like, so I, I was kind of, I think at that time I would have, maybe resonated with Gerard Butler's character a little more where like I had had this negative perception so ingrained in me, you know, or like that was the societal attitude at the time, like, and then coming into acceptance. Cause that, that, that year time period, maybe a little earlier for me was right around the same time. Like I became m- more of an open accepting person. Mm-hmm. Not that I was going out and like participating in, in hateful stuff before, but it was a product of the era. Yeah, I just rewatching that scene, it really was just jarring, like how out there and overblown Gerard Butler. Now, again though, the he's not like homosexuality is wrong, like you're you're terrible for being it. It's more like, no, you, no, I know you handsome Bob. Like <laughs> I know all your girlfriends. I know like, yeah. you know, like it's more like. Di- it's also I, a little out of character. I think with like that attitude of like stiff upper lip that he's like getting out and pacing around the car and like yelling in the street. Yeah, but and he's everything. Scottish and they're not a stick. <laughs> so. Yeah. That, that makes it more dramatic where I think like more of a yelling whisper conversation in the car maybe maybe would have come off better yeah where he just like stops the car and is like no you're handsome mom i know your girlfriends yeah if he, if like, he would have stayed in the car it would have been a little different i think tom hardy plays it a lot more dramatically than it probably should have been because he plays it as like very tortured like coming out to his closest friend mm-hmm. yeah Somewhere, somewhere in the middle is where that sweet spot is. Yeah. Or, or if one of them were to come over to the other side, I don't know. <laughs> I also just kind of miss the time period where Ludacris was just showing up in things. I know we talked yeah. about it a little earlier, but that was a fun thing when, like, oh shit, Ludacris is in this. He's not even. He's not a bad actor by any stretch. Yeah. Like, uh, he's also in the. Isn't he in a gamer with Gerard Butler? Is he? I think he is. Um, he was also, I, I swear he's in Max Payne. Let's see here. He is in Gamer. Is he also in Max Payne? He sure is. So yeah, like there was a time in the late, late aughts where Chris Bridges was just showing up in movies. Mm-hmm. And now he's just ludicrous again. And he's, he's in, you know, Fast and Furious films. And yeah, that's that. He still shows up in his more recent credits as Chris Ludacris Bridges. Right. Whereas this movie, he, he is as Chris Bridges. Yeah. So he was trying to like, you know, mature, I feel, and go more serious into acting. Yeah. Right around that, like, crash, hustle and flow kind of crash. Yeah, he was uh, one of the two guys who were, like, lamenting the black stereotype. And they have that scene oh. where they're talking about, like, oh, you know why they 
put those big windows on the buses it's like so the rich people can look in at the I've never seen Crash so okay it's it's Oscar bait basically racism exists the movie it sure do so yeah I I think the the overall summary of Rock and Rolla is its parts are better than the sum of its whole I believe yeah Sandy Newton was also in Crash. Or Tandy. Sandy. Whatever. <laughs> Look um, at me, I'm Sandra D. End conversation now. <laughs> Conclusions and final thoughts. Uh, I did Grease in high school. It's a part of me now. <laughs> so, come on back after the break. We'll talk about our final conclusions. We'll see you then. <laughs> Welcome back to the conclusions and final thoughts. So, Aaron, what do you <laughs> think is the better of the two films? Well, you know, I thought long and hard, rock and roll. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty obvious which way we're leaning on this. Um, it's layer cake for me. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. This is interesting though because this is the second movie in a row where we have not watched the films together, and we didn't discuss any any major ideas. So the fact that we both disliked Rock and Rolla was a little surprising to me because yeah. I figured you'd be all about it because like I like Guy Ritchie films and you like Guy Ritchie films and I figured yeah. you'd like the Guy Ritchie film over the <laughs> other film. I I am a total stand for Guy Ritchie. Like I'm not going to deny that, but I think this is, you know, one of Guy Ritchie's weakest works. I mean for some of the reasons we talked about like I yeah, just he lost his mojo. You know, there was something missing, whether it was an editor or the, whether he was too in his own head about making a Guy Ritchie movie or something. But maybe it was the actors couldn't get who he wanted, although that seems I don't, I, like I feel like he was a big enough name to maybe pull down who he wanted. I mean, the guy was married to Madonna, like yeah. just from that alone, he could get people to, you know, jo- do his movies. Yeah. So for whatever reason, this movie just didn't didn't come together. I saw Revolver. I don't remember too much about it. I really but, like Revolver. Yeah, it was the movie right before this. I kind of want to go back and, and see where he was at. But. I think, you know, mentioning Revolver, I feel like he got a lot of pushback from critics and audiences on that one because it was it was different than his other Guy Ritchie films. It had some similar themes and, like, some stuff, but it was a lot more serious. There's like no comedy in it. It's very like dour and there's a little bit of hyper realism to almost to surrealism going on in it. Mm-hmm. And I think because he got a bit burned all around on that, he was, he did rock and roller to be like, okay, I'm just going to go to what's safe and what I know. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you get these two films kind of like at the opposite ends of the decade where Lair Cake is the first major picture of a director who hadn't really found his voice as a director because Lair Cake compared to The Kingsman, Kick-Ass and all that, uh, very different feel from the, the cinematography, the, 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 like everything about it. It's 
very grounded and very realistic. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Kingsman is like got this hyper realism and stylization going on. Same with Kick-Ass. There's a style to the film. Yeah, I know Kick-Ass is, is adapted from a graphic novel, right? So is Kingsman, actually. Same uh, okay, writer yeah. of, the gra- of Kick-Ass. I was I was gonna ask if uh, Kingsman was, but yeah, it's because it has that that same attitude that I think you know Matthew Vaughn does very well yeah. when he's not then, producing Fantastic Four movies. Well, you look at his producer credits, and he's produced far more than he has directed. Yeah, so he he's a big time producer. He's produced you know a gambit of things. He was a producer on all of his films, as I, I mentioned previously. So. Yeah. Including Lock, Sock, and Snatch, like we said. Yeah. So I, he clearly understood like British crime movies because he, you know, produced two of the the most successful ones at the time. And so mm-hmm. he was like, I'm going to do a different take on it. And like, I think it's a timing thing that time has been far kinder to Lair Cake. I think it's maybe not like an eight movie. I think it is solidly the the point like it's like a 7.5 to a 7.7 in my opinion yeah like i think 7.3 is a bit harsh on it almost saying it's a a a d it's like yeah i mean i personally would give it like b but i'm more like i'm more generous with my uh movies that i like i guess right i think most people are yeah, it definitely feels like rock and roll are like sharing the same rating as layer cake is punching above its weight class. Like And I think it might get that because more people are like, I like Guy Ritchie. Whereas mm-hmm. now people might know Matthew Vaughn and they might look at it as like, well, it's not like his other films, so I don't like it as much. Yeah. I mean, I would I would forgive someone for thinking Layer Cake was a Guy Ritchie movie, honestly. Yeah, um why not what did Revolver come out around the same time? I believe so. Layer Cake was 2005. I think Revolver was, yeah, 2005. So, I mean, that might have been another reason it didn't get as well received. It got buried like, oh, here's this other serious British crime movie that's dealing yeah. with some existential themes. That Co-written kind of... by Luke Besson. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> um or no, sorry, written by Guy Ritchie, adaptation by Luc Besson. So, huh, I can't remember how that stuff works. I think that would mean that Luc Besson adapted it for the screen. And it was like, like I don't a know story if... idea by Guy Ritchie? Yeah. Okay. I mean, um, IMDb listed as written by, not like story by, which I know is kind of a common credit interesting characters by you know hollywood (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah uh, maybe that contributes to a lower score overall because oh you got this established director guy Ritchie putting out his you know film revolver which has a little more meat on its bones from a a critical standpoint and a you know uh it's telling stuff more and you have a very competent solid tightly paced crime film from a first-time director matthew vaughn yeah like i would like these movies like running time wise are only about 10 minutes apart like rock and roller is literally nine minutes longer than 
layer cake. But it feels longer. It doesn't. It doesn't have that momentum from scene to scene. Yeah, it you know, either the, needs to be that Martin Scorsese three and a half hours, <laughs> or it needs to, like, I don't know. I don't think it would even benefit from having scenes cut out. No, like, I, it, I think it needs it's a, more. It needs more, and it's a pacing issue to do with like the order of scenes and how they're presented. One thing I didn't bring up in our our discussion of it was the second robbery scene is intercut with one two telling Stella like like intercut with him and like the the robbery and then it cuts fully to showing you how they got away and all that. It's like why didn't you just show us like that normally? Yeah. Like I've... you could you could honestly cut that scene of him with Stella if you were going to do show us, you know, how he got hurt anyway. Yeah. And like Stella even says like, yeah, I know I was there. <laughs> and it shows her watching it all happen. You know what? Yeah. A scene that could have been cut was probably how long they have to escape for. Mm-hmm. But that, right. yeah, that also like strikes me as a real Guy Ritchie thing. And maybe this was his motivation for putting it in. Like if you think back to Snatch, like they have this scene with the dog chasing the rabbit at the same time that they're chasing down Tyrone. Yeah, so the the cross cutting, but there's no there's no real there's no real parallel cutting going on with that. Mm-hmm. Like if it had been maybe intercut with uh, rather than here, so there's no tension in that scene because we already know he got away with it. It's just showing us how he got away with it. Yeah, that's a good point. A better intercut might have been something to do with Johnny, or maybe like Roman and. Um, Roman and uh, Mickey like chasing down leads Mm -hmm. to show like, again, like things are happening that are all intertwined rather than it feels like the, uh, the, the rock and roller focuses mostly on the wild bunch and Stella with Lenny, Lenny and Archie's stories. And then you also get stuff from, you know, Uri, Johnny, Roman and Mickey. Yeah, because, like, you can also compare that same sort of thing to, like, the diner scene from Layer Cake or the, you know, whatever it was, where you have those two similar happenings with the guy getting the shit kicked out of him in the middle of a diner and uh, the Duke getting shot. So, yeah, if, if you were to put in, like, something with Johnny, like, maybe show his, I don't know, him, his struggle with addiction, like... Maybe show away maybe actually like... show Johnny stealing the painting. Yeah, even though that's that's later in the film already. Like, there's that weird that, that feels like him trying to do Tarantino with the 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 glow in the briefcase. Yeah, because this painting captivates everyone that sees it, and we we as the audience never see it. Yeah, and it just it doesn't have the same panache. It would, As, it would be interesting, I think, is if you were to show something that like seems mundane, like it's just a picture of a seaside, but for some reason all the characters are drawn to it. Like, show the painting. Don't make that allusion to the glowing briefcase because you're not doing it as well. Well, it and, feels you know, like kind of a problem that Lock Stock had, where there was that really you know old high end shotgun that they had you know taken, and they don't know, they don't realize how important it is. Like. A better, maybe a better way to do this movie would have been 
rather than opening with the Wild Bunch trying to get into real estate, focusing on Lenny Cole with Archie doing a narration would be starting with Johnny, like doing the, like being that like real rock and roller thing and like looking at the painting and talking about it. And like every character that comes like make, make the painting, the connective tissue more apparent. Mm-hmm. Cause like in snatch, it's the diamond. So basically it's trying to fulfill the same role as the diamond However, we see the diamond and understand its intrinsic value and why everyone would want it that knows about it. And everyone that comes in contact with it through nefarious means meets a bad end. Yeah. So, Except that dog. That dog is, turns out okay. Well, the dog didn't have a nefar- didn't come into contact nefarious. It's a dog. <laughs> oh, you like dags? Oh, dogs. Yeah, I like dogs. Oh, I like caravans we, more. We're already we quoting sh- Snatch, the better guy Richie film, <laughs> talking about the inferior guy Richie film. We need to do a movie or like a standalone bonus episode where we just gush about Snatch for oh, that's an unfortunate combination of words. Um Your choice, we, not mine. <laughs> where we talk about Snatch for half an hour. Yeah. So I think that would have been a better pace into the film is that painting being the thing that's bringing everyone together. Yeah. But you have make, make the painting. Yeah. Like make the painting iconic, like put it on a poster, like, you know, draw some, maybe get some intrigue about it. Like if it's, if it's a plain thing and everyone sees something different in it, like that's more interesting than mystery painting, at least to me. Well, I think you, again, you can do mystery painting, but have every character react to it with like the similar, like, oh, like I can't look away kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Instead, you have like three characters that don't give a shit about it. You have one, two, and the the wild bunch that just buy it off a junkie that stole it. Like, and they don't show any deeper understanding or appreciation for it. Like that could have showed like an imbalance in the romantic interest in the relationship between one, two and Stella that he gives her this painting that he like clearly enjoys. And then she only likes it because, Oh, do you know what this is? This is a such and such, such and such. Yeah. Especially if you're going to show her in all these modern art museums and anyway, uh, cookie cookie does kind of like exhibit that, like, you know, they put it up on the easel. He's like, I'll buy it. I don't care how much, just... I the... think that was more him, just like, these junkies have clearly got something that's way better than they know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so he's just like, I'm going to get them to shut up really quick. <laughs> yeah. Um. So do you think, like, obviously with Sherlock Holmes and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, we recommended you watch both movies. Do you think that applies here? Or, like, would you unless, give Rock and Roller a skip? Unless you're a diehard Guy Ritchie fan and really want to... Like, just watch an average London gangster film. I'd say just go... Lair Cake is the better London average gangster film. Mm-hmm. And if honestly, just watch Snatch if you want to watch a Guy Ritchie <laughs> gangster film because that is a superior film. It's funnier. It's more quotable. It's more memorable. It has a better inertia from scene to scene. And it's just fresher. Whereas this feels like old hat with rock and roller. Like I am definitely interested in whatever the idea for the sequel is, but we're probably never going to get that. Yeah. I wonder, I know we've like thrown out 
50 different theories about why rock and roller ended up the way it did, but maybe this was supposed to be like a more for a more general audience. Maybe like, uh, again, like going back to like burned by revolver, which, you know, probably really didn't find its audience until secondary market. The, the rock and roller is like, Oh, this is what you expect from a Guy Ritchie film. And it has like a lot of faces that, you know, at this time, it's like, Oh, it's got Leonidas. Uh, it's got, you know, <laughs> other people. <laughs> Idris Elba. Well, Idris Elba was coming off the wire. Or? Yeah, the wire was over for a, a little bit then, and then I think he had done the first series of Luther by that time. I mean, Ludacris always popular. Entourage had just come out in two thousand four. So Jeremy Piven was you know pretty big in 08. That's when the series was hitting its stride. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of Layer Cake's release date, but yeah, it'd been out for four years. Yeah, who knows? It's I'm sure I'm sure someone's delved into it. Some article we haven't read, but I would be curious. Maybe I'll put something in the description or an addendum. So yeah, go go watch Lair Cake. It is currently on Netflix streaming, at least until the end of 2019. Um, fantastic way to watch it. Really simple and easy. Uh, fun film that uh, is humorous, serious, and just well done. Yeah, and watch Snatch. I yeah. don't know where you can find it. It's somewhere out there. It's on but... Netflix. Okay, I know. I th- it was. I'm sh- I'm sure you're right. I'm just gonna double check because it come it goes on and comes off and yeah, always coming and going and going <laughs> and coming and always too soon. <laughs> uh, not currently on Netflix. It is on IMDb TV Hoopla and voodoo for free with ads so there are ways to watch it so thank you all for listening that's another one in the can <laughs> it is uh if you want to get a hold of us you can reach us uh matchcutpod at gmail.com or on twitter at matchcut uh we are almost almost done for the year we got one more episode coming out after this which i am not just looking up the titles right now <laughs> Installing for time while <laughs> while Google loads. So, but you can come on back and join us for our season finale of 2019, where we're doing Soylent Green versus iRobot versus 2012's Dread. There will also be a special guest. There sure will be <laughs> three movies, three guests, three hosts, three <laughs> co-hosts, three, three times the pedantic uh, talking <laughs> around in circles. Three times the length. It's going to be five hours and you're going to have to listen to it. Anyway, join us for that. It's going to be a ton of fun. And we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Uh, it's just that SNL sketch every time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. <laughs>